Hello, good evening, and welcome to the TNT Show. I'm John Drummond, and I'm your host for the next 60 exciting minutes. You know, it's been another great day for British democracy. Westminster's Public Accounts Committee has today confirmed that £37 billion, not million, £37 billion has been wasted on this still not working test and trade system. Now, some people reckon that you can send a spacecraft to Mars for less than that. But think about this. Imagine if you're a nurse or a hard-working person in the NHS, and you've been told by the government that they cannot afford a sufficient pay rise for you, an adequate pay rise. All the time, you know that billions have been squandered on what is now being called a boondoggle. Look it up. It means waste, really. Thanks for joining us this evening. We have yet another great guest, uh, and I'm really excited that he's with us. Uh, tonight, the TNT show, The Nation Talks, and welcomes Bob Ingram. Now, we'll be talking about constitutions. What is a constitution? Why does it matter? Does it matter? Uh, how do you end up with a constitution? How many countries do have constitutions? Uh, how is the UK placed in terms of constitutions? And we'll be talking about the crucial importance of a constitution for Scotland in particular, and so much more besides. And we'll be taking your questions live, 60 minutes, live questions, and we'll try and answer as many as we can. So in many respects, this is your show. So the details are on the screen, the what's on guide, you can send your questions or comments there, and we'll try and take on board as many as we can. So now to our guest. The Nation talks tonight and welcomes Bob Ingram. Bob, welcome to the show. How are you coping with the pandemic? Oh, thank you for the show, being on the show, John. Con pandemic, like most folks, well, boredom in many ways because we live out in the country. But having said that, living in the country in a small community is a very comforting issue because all around us we hear the problems, but the community held together absolutely tremendously. We've got a, a great bunch of neighbours out in a little uh, hamlet outside the village, and every single one of them are pulled together. It's been disappointing to hear how some of our friends have had to hmm, suffer, but at the same time, the, the strengths of our communities, that's what has come through to us. That's good to hear, Bob. Very good uh, to hear. Now, let's hear about Bob Ingram. Tell us about Bob Ingram. Tell us where you were born, where you grew up, where you went to school, what it was like. Hmm. Well, I was born on a kitchen table in a tenement in, in the Bro. Well, that's, to you southerners, that's Fresborough. And um, we come from a mixture of tradesfolk and fisherfolk. Just uh, until 
just after I was born, the family actually moved to a village just outside Aberdeen, Buxburn. And these days, it wasn't just part of the main road. It was actually a village in its own. And uh, that's where I was, we brought up during the actual uh, war, etc., and started my education. After the war, when my father came back from the, the Far East, we actually moved into Aberdeen. And uh, that's basically where I completed my education there. And um, like many struggling families, there were four of us. There wasn't all that much money. So I had to uh, leave school at 16. And I was fortunate in getting an engineering apprenticeship in uh, Hall Russell's shipbuilding. And... Um, did five years there, and in the evening, I actually carried on with my studies at uh, evening classes. And, uh, well, following the... I could tell you a few stories about uh, what life in a shipyard, but I don't think I'll bother. Some of them I like to think about, but uh, there are some I'm much prepared to get anyway. Well, you could be actually, like Billy Connolly, you can make a whole career out of it, Bob. Oh, my God, yes. <laughs> but after I finished my apprenticeship, and I actually went off to the Merchant Navy and joined the, the British India Steam Navigation Company, and we basically roamed the world. I've sailed on just about every type of ship you could imagine, from tankers, cargo ships, passenger ships. You've probably heard of the, the educational cruise ships. I sailed on two of them. And uh, I finally ended up with, on the, the wild reefers. That's the high-speed refrigerating boats. It was a, a time of, it was maritime war ongoing between the UK and uh, basically Russia. The Russia was trying to take over the actual uh, routes of the, the British merchant fleet. And we didn't have the numbers. So we built the specialized ships. The, the last ship I actually served on could do 33 knots. So uh, we had very state-of-the-art front of the uh, technology ships to combat the end And it ended up with a stalemate anyway. But you probably heard of one of the ships that I sailed on, the SS Uganda. It went to the, uh, the Falklands, fortunately, without me. But I'd actually sailed on her for about two years. And then I swapped on to her sister ship, the, the Kenya, and she was an extremely elegant lady. And they had needed a senior engineer to actually, who knew the ships to uh, keep her running because she'd been scheduled for, uh, to be sold. So I saw her at the end of her days and we saw her going out with it as a very elegant lady. Mm. And uh, at the same time, I continued my education as well. I did a couple of uh, open university courses. Education. I could sail any ship in the world, steam or motor. Mm. When I left the actual uh, Merchant Navy after about 17 years, because it had lost its challenge. Uh, what, was your, what was your role in, in the Merchant Navy? What did you I do? I was an engineer. You, I came up with actually engineer. a, a a chief engineer is, is um, partnered with a master. 
There's no captains in the British Merchant Navy. There are masters and they're chief engineers. And most folk are not aware that under the law, the responsibility on a British merchant ship is divided. All technical issues come under the chief engineer and all the other functions of the vessel come under the master. And for business mm-hmm. purposes and uh, managerial purposes, the master is the actual number one. But there are quite a number of issues. For example, if we were going taking out a, going on a contract, it was the chief engineer who actually signed for all the fuel. And in most of these contracts, it was the actual uh, fuel, which was the biggest lump of the bill. So you actually had a, you're, to be effective, you actually had to have a very good relationship between the master and the chief engineer. And in most cases, that was the case. Now, some of the people watching and listening tonight, their only association with an engineer is Scotty in Star Trek, oh. where uh, Captain Kirk will say typically, beam me up, Scotty. And uh, Scotty is, as the name suggests, is intended to be Scottish, and he's the chief engineer on the USS Enterprise. Did anyone ever call you Scotty? No, I was generally in in the merchant in the um, in the BI. We were called Sir, and uh, in the uh, the rest of the the fleet, once we amalgamated in with the the rest of the. Uh, the PNO, we were just referred to as chief, or once, uh, particularly if you were on a, a difficult job, you'd get that, oh, thanks, boss. So it was either chief or boss for the bulk of the time. But you weren't called jock, right? Very seldom. We, we'd be termed jock if we were ashore, meeting people we'd never met before, because as I went ashore, I was brought up to wear the, the, the tartan when I was dressed. So I always wore the tartan when I went on shore. And even uh, when I was uh, on official invites, and sometimes we had them at some fairly senior level, even you know meeting ambassadors, et cetera, et cetera, uh, I still wore the tartan. To me, that was being dressed. Mm-hmm. Wasn't it uncomfortable in hot climates? No. To have all this wool? No, no because uh, I had two tartan, two kilts. Heavy duty one for being at home and a lightweight one for the tropics. And it was the most comfortable garment you could imagine in the tropics. There's plenty of air, particularly down underneath. <laughs> there you are, folks. Next time you're on your uh, Caribbean holiday or you end up in uh, Asia, take a light kilt. That's the business, it sounds to me. So what did you do when you left the, uh, the merchant navy? the merchant service? Well, the merchant service, I'd went basically right to the top there. And I had a choice. Either I went on shore as a superintendent or I could find another job. I didn't fancy a superintendent's job because it meant uh, emigrating down to uh, London. And uh, I'm married to a queen who's uh, born and bred up here in the Gary, And there's no way. She's going to uh, live down in London. We had to visit on when I was down at head office, etc. But she loved to shop. Used to empty the wallet, but when we're finished, here we go. So 
the North Sea was actually opening up at the time. And there was an opening came from one of the big oil companies. They had started building the big platforms. And they were running into a problem. Because in the oil companies, there were specialists. Each department was a specialist department. And all their promotion was dependent on how effective they were in that department. When they actually went offshore, there were a number of, part of the departments working together. Drilling, engineering, maintenance, production. They all had to work together. And if you actually had a drilling boss, priority went to drilling. There was no balance. And they, the company said, well, where do we find people who can provide multi-activity balance? The Merchant Navy. They recruited a whole bunch of masters and chief engineers. They gave us the most thorough training you could actually imagine. If you didn't already have a discipline, I was exact, you know, maintenance, instrumentation, I had already that. But I knew nothing about processing. I knew nothing about drilling. So they sent me across to The Hague and put me through a complete drilling course. I was a qualified driller by the time they finished. Didn't think much of it, but yeah, it was hard work. It's a, when they came, if, you, if you went to The Hague, does that mean this was part of Shell? Yes. At any rate, when you come back to the, this country, I was put through a, a complete production course. Everything, even to the uh, learn how to do their computers and all the rest of it. Then we went offshore. And I started on the Dunlany platform. Well, we, we were paired up, a master and a chief engineer, each one on each shift. That provided a balance because they needed technical expertise, which I could provide, and they also needed administration advice, which the master could provide. And again, we were, come from a background where we worked together, which wasn't happening at that time. And the result was that the Dunlin was, I think it was four and a half, five months behind schedule. At any rate, we wrapped a few heads together because uh, the Merchant Navy was no way uh, place for tender uh, violets. And we, was, we ourselves were skilled professionals. They were all professionals. And uh, we sorted about. Mm -hmm. In the end, we actually merged the team and got them all working and talking and balanced out the thing. We brought the Dunlin online only a week behind schedule. Oh. Oh, yeah. We were able, they were all skilled professionals. They just needed their heads bent together and say, come on, lads, let's start working together. <laughs> and it worked. And uh, right across the actual Brents, that was the same thing. Because after we got uh, the, the Dunlin sorted out, I got shifted across to the, uh, the Brent Alpha, where they were having a problem there. They were trying to interconnect uh, some um, additional pipe work to actually for connection down to Salem, to um, St. Fergus. And again, they were running into the problems of this management. And we again got together a master and a chief engineer, 
and we resolved that issue. And then after that, the uh, I went uh, eventually ended up on the Brent Charlie, which was the big boy in the Brents. I don't know if many people can appreciate the sheer size and complexity of one of these big platforms. But a reasonable description of the Brent Charlie would be, take a football field, take a second football field, put one on top of the other and fit an oil distillery in the middle. Take a 300 bedroom uh, hotel and stick it on top at one end. Take a full size drilling rig and put it in the middle. Put a, a storage yard on one side for containers yeah. and put another big storage yard for pipes on the other side. And at the other end of the, the, the platform, you put in a big power plant. We had um, main power was supplied from two gas turbine driven altars, even turbines. Alongside that, we actually had a pump station. We actually pumped either oil to the um, Cormorant and Salonvaux, or we pumped it to the actual uh, loading bay in the middle of the, uh, the, the Brent field. Stick a, a gas compression uh, module on top of that. Because we actually had to pump the gas. It's separated from the oil all the way to actual St. Fergus. Now, were you, or, were you around when the, the Brent Spar was decommissioned? Yes. We actually, we, we used the Brent Spar, and uh, I never actually served on the Brent Spar. I was always on the Big Four. Now, I got involved in that, personally, mm -hmm. sort of afterwards. Um, but I'd like to know from you how you feel about the decision uh, that was ultimately taken to uh, demolish the Brent Spar platform in a field in Norway, as opposed to sinking it in the North Sea. I would have preferred that it was actually brought into a, a fjord in uh, Scotland and taken apart. Oh, isn't that interesting? What the about disposal in the North Sea? Because that was the scientific perspective, if I remember right. And not the North Sea, the Atlantic Ocean. The Atlantic Ocean. Mm -hmm. I, the, the, the problem with uh, all of these installations was the storage, the hydrogen sulfide. It was deadly. But the over way to overcome that was to oxidate it. And that could have been done. And in fact, the, of the uh, four bread platforms, Two of them required continuous oxygenation just to make the center columns uh, habitable. Otherwise, the uh, hydrogen sulfide. Yeah. There was a couple I, of that. I, I, I got something involved later in the stage when Shell hired us to take a look at why, um, even though scientific opinion determined that the best way to dispose of Brent Spar was to sink it in the Atlantic Ocean, that Greenpeace had put together a, a campaign, uh, ultimately very successful, to insist that it was taken on shore. 
and, uh, and taken apart there, even though the science didn't quite support that. Shell were confused. They said, we don't understand this. We've been around for, what, 200 years almost, or at least 100 good years uh, of uh, being uh, uh, successful. And yet in the public arena, um, people would rather believe uh, Greenpeace than believe us. Uh, of course, the answer at the end of the day is very simple, which is that Greenpeace had huge amounts of ethical capital to spend and Shell had none. Uh, and when you get into a sort of situation like that, where you're dealing with ethics and you don't have any ethical capital, then you're sunk without trace, if, if you'll excuse that pun. Uh, and that's essentially what happened. They lost the argument, even if they produced all the most extraordinary science in the world, they would not have been successful uh, because the public mood was conditioned by if people trusted a, a Greenpeace or they trusted Shell and they decided they trusted Greenpeace significantly. And yes. in these circumstances, it's well now impossible to win that argument, right. however strenuously you put the point. Just on the side, but uh, I found that a very interesting time uh, because that was the point at which I think companies began to understand that life isn't the way they thought it was and that public opinion can be extremely, extremely strong. Oh, yes. And if you lose public support, uh, it takes a long time to recover it. Mm -hmm. But of I course, there had been problems with Mossy too. I think one of the problems that uh, Shell and all these big companies face is that we've been made aware that the big companies, regardless of what discipline, will put the shareholders' interests first. And although Shell, I think, they did a very good job at uh, attempting to meet ethical, ethical uh, parameters, they too were subject to the power of the, the pound in the back pocket. Well, you know, we, we, we checked that out way back then, and... Part of the problem is down to us, ironically, because we want our pensions. Yes. Uh, we want our insurances. And so much of the money that appears in our pension pots and supports our insurances comes from investment in companies like Shell and, and others. And we, we demand good returns yes. on those investments. So uh, either we have to stop demanding returns, or, or we have to come up with a different system whereby yeah. our pensions are somehow provided otherwise mm -hmm. and not through uh, any sort of uh, corporate profits. There needs to be a better balance. That's what's missing. Yeah. There's not a balance there. Yeah. And, it, and, it, and it's, it's, it's maybe unreasonable to expect companies to provide that balance. Maybe we should be saying to governments, you need to get involved in some way of dealing with uh, corporate profits in a way that takes away, because I, you know, I used to speak to so many executives who would say to me categorically, if I don't produce right, a, a, a sufficient return as specified, uh, then I'll be replaced by somebody who will. Yes. That's quite correct. And, and that is the driving force right throughout the business. You actually have to produce. So uh, you had this great career in the merchant service, the merchant navy, you're a, 
another great career uh, in the North Sea. Uh, uh, and, and then you, what did you, at some point you must have decided you want to, to retire. And what did you do then? Yeah, well, actually, once I retired, I uh, was able to actually pay back a little to the community. And uh, I actually joined a number of uh, local uh, care organisations, helped out there. I um, also, uh, when, once we actually moved out into the, the country, I became a, a community uh, councillor. I, I spent nine years as a, a local community councillor. Oh. Um, my wife is, all, is one of these people, her feet are firmly on the ground. Yeah. And no matter what uh, position actually I actually achieved, whether it was uh, in the merchant navy or in uh, in the oil industry, anytime I started getting a wee bit inflated head, it I was quickly deflated. Okay. Just get down to earth, man. <laughs> well, I tell you what, Bob. Let, let's let's talk about constitutions. Yes, because. There'll be many people, I suspect, watching and listening today will be saying to themselves, I'm not sure I, I, I quite understand what a constitution is and why it's, it has any relevance to my life. What would your answer be to that? Go to the nearest club. Go to their golf club or go to their bowling club or go to their football club. There are rules and regulations. Most times it's the actual uh, committee who actually formulate them, but they're authorised by the members. And that sets out the conduct and the principles and the rules and regulations for the club. And a nation is just the same. You actually needed rules and regulations. It was the same when we were actually uh, hard back onto the um, offshore industry. Everyone who actually went on an offshore platform, the first thing they saw was the station bell. That set out where their place was on the platform. Behind that, the actual departmental heads had all had their own procedures, etc. Mm -hmm. The OIN was in charge of that, but he couldn't authorise it. Yeah. That actually had to go back to the authorising force. Okay. And that was in a company, that's the bosses. Yeah. But in a country, in a country, you still need that authority. And it but comes don't, don't we, don't we have that? Don't we have laws? Surely the laws give us that. The laws are executive instructions. Behind these laws, you have a constitution which sets out the principles that guide the actual functions of the actual uh, parliament. A constitution, it's a collection of uh, higher laws, mm -hmm. which determine, which outlines the principles on which your country actually operate. Utilizing the, they actually set out the, they're set out in such a manner that they can't be changed by just an ordinary act of parliament. It takes a special procedure okay. to actually change part of a, an amendment. Okay. 
A constitution, it sets out, it's the basic principles of the state, the structures and the processes, and the fundamental rights of people. That's all spelt out under the basic principles of a nation. It, con it controls the conduct of how our parliamentarians work, how our local authorities work. Do you, do you believe that this constitution has to be written down? Most definitely. Because well, what, what, we have seen with, what's wrong with the UK? What's the UK? What's wrong with the UK approach of uh, it, the UK has a constitution? Okay, it's not all collected together or codified, I mean, but it is written down in different acts and different rulings and different judgments and different uh, uh, reactions of uh, people across the years. What's wrong with that? Because it just takes a prime minister with a right majority to go in and change any of these laws. He can change a basic principle if he's got the majority. If you have a written constitution, you can't do that. You need a special procedure, a multi-step process yeah. to actually change the basic principles on which a state is, is set out. Now, some, some people watching and listening tonight will be thinking to themselves, well, you know something, uh, you know, I, I watch countries with written constitutions and it seems to me they're not a great deal better than, than here. I mean, they'll, they'll be thinking about the United States, which has had a constitution since 1717, well, the late 18th century, let's put it that way. And yet, look at the troubles they have. You know, they, they start, they have amendments, they have prohibition, they try that, that doesn't work, they have to repeal it. At that time, they've produced a huge bunch of gangsters who didn't exist before. They'll say, what's so commendable about a written constitution? It depends on the constitution and how it's written and what it's written for. Let's bear in mind that the constitution of the, right of the United States was written at a particular time for a particular set of circumstances, and it was written in a manner which could not be readily changed. It became out of date, unfit for purpose, and even today, they're still struggling to make the necessary amendments to bring it into line with the society they have, let alone the society they want. And this has actually happened in, of the 195 nations in the world, only three of them do not have a written constitution. Now, of those which do have a constitution, where you actually have the constitution written on behalf of the people, they've actually made it work. But a lot of constitutions have been written by elites, sometimes by particular uh, political parties, for themselves, not for the general population. But you take the actual constitutions in many of states in Europe, in Scandinavia, their constitutions are written with involvement and participation of the people themselves. And hence, there's parity across that. And they work more effectively. 
the most effective, the nations which have become most effective are those with a well-balanced written constitution. People know where they are, where they stand, who is accountable. You don't have that in the UK. You said there were only three countries out of 100 nods that don't have a written constitution. What are those three? Who are those three? We live in one. The other is New Zealand. And the third is Israel. Well, New Zealand seems to get by perfectly well without a written constitution. They actually have a... They don't have a written constitution per se, but they do have a centralized system. And not only that, with their actual background, et cetera, they actually came together as a complete unit, representative unit of the people. And that's how they actually put together the rules by which they operate. Yeah. I think we've had a question from uh, Ashbury Stumble. He's saying, well, the question is, once a written constitution is established, would it need a referendum to change one clause or could parliament make that change? It depends on the system you built into the, on, into the constitution. Mm-hmm. You, there are a number of ways of doing it. For example, in one of the uh, Scandinavian countries, if you want to change the constitution, the parliament has to actually agree the content, or discuss and then sit on it. They can't pass it. It's put into abeyance until the next parliament comes up. Okay. And they actually have to look through it. And only then will they agree it. Mm-hmm. There are countries who go even further. They say, right, parliament must agree. There must be a certain percentage who will pass it. And then it has to go to a referendum. Yeah. Okay. For example, Switzerland, they have referendums regularly at both at um, federation level and at canton level. Mm. The constitution can be changed, but it is not an easy process. So, how easy or difficult would it be for Westminster to produce a a written constitution, do you think? Mm. I'm not going to try answering that one, John, but... uh... (laughs) (laughs) I understand it has been talked about before, but they are very well entrenched. And let's be honest about it, they're a wee bit out of date. Isn't one fundamental flaw, uh, which would make producing a written constitution very difficult, one that might cover the whole island, for example, because I I assume that would be the intention, is, is that there are two different views of sovereignty north and south of the border. The English view of sovereignty is vested in the Crown and Parliament. Yes. And the Scottish uh, system is predicated upon sovereignty being vested with the people. Yes. These, these seem to me to be utterly incompatible. You couldn't have, you couldn't have one system <laughs> that somehow accommodated these two because they're the opposite ends of a spectrum. If I believe an institution should be sovereign, that is completely and diametrically opposite to someone else saying, I believe the people are sovereign. Correct. So how could you possibly produce well, any form of constitution that honor both those systems? Look at the actual system we have, or, or what it happened. 
in 77, when we were taken over, sold out, the England simply had the numbers to actually carry on using their system. And essentially, the Scottish constitutional system was brushed to the side. Wasn't it, it wasn't done away with, just simply brushed to the side. Today, that system, parliamentary so sovereignty, is the one which controls us. It authorizes our current government in uh, Holyrood. When we go independent, we'll no longer be under that system. Yes, okay. The Scottish system will come in then. And that is when our parliament in Scotland will have to be authorised by the people. Mm. And that's where we, we come back again to a, a written constitution. But in Scotland, it will be authorised by the sovereignty, which is held by the people. So, I, I gather what you're saying is that if there is to be any written constitution in Scotland, that constitution would have to be approved by the people. Yes. Because they are sovereign. Exactly. And in other words, they control Absolutely. everything. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Got it. So, where is our written constitution for Scotland? At the moment, there is about five or six. There's a lot of people who actually, we don't have an official one. But there's a number I of know. people have uh, attempted to draft them. Why, why don't we? Because we, we are under the English system of uh, governance. Sorry. Okay. But what, what's, what, what is to prevent the Scottish Parliament drawing up a constitution? Nothing. So why haven't they done it? Ask them. Think? I don't know. I'm we we don't have them on tonight, Bob. We've got you. And I'm asking you what you, why you think. Because it seems to me self-evidently that this is a good thing. Yes. So therefore I ask myself, and I'm asking you, if it is such a good thing, and so self-evidently a good thing, why have the Scottish government that's been in power for at least 12 years not produced at least a draft constitution for Scotland? But they actually have had two draft constitutions written for them. But the, they appear to be reluctant to actually share with the rest of us what they are actually considering and planning. The, the, see, people watching this and listening to this will be confused by that because they'll be thinking, hold on a second. If this is a good thing, and it sounds to me, they might say, it sounds like a good thing. It's a desirable thing. I would have expected my government uh, to have responded in some way and to have produced a constitution and say to people, if there is an independent Scotland, here's how your rights are protected. Here's how the government is constrained from misbehaving. Whatever government is formed in an independent Scotland, they do not have the ability to uh, subject you to particular forms of treatment. You would think that would be a very valuable thing to have. And you would think you, you would put it front and centre and say to people, particularly undecided people, the so-called soft nose, look, folks, it doesn't matter which government you have in this new state, your rights 
are protected by the state, not by the government. Yes. So I ask, I'm asking you, <laughs> because you're here and the, and the Scottish government isn't, why haven't they put this front and centre? I don't know, because there have been many movements which have actually attempted to do so. And it's one of the reasons why a number of groups at the present moment are either drafting or ourselves, we, have actually, we are actually okay. attempting to hold the conversation with good, people. Good. But we'll, we'll come on to that in a second, Bob. Who, who in the SNP Scottish government is responsible for the constitution? I'm not a member of the SNP, okay. nor am I a member of the government. Okay, okay. So you, you're, you're working hard and your team uh, to, to, to promote the idea of a written constitution for Scotland. Yes. Tell us, about, tell us about, about your team and what they've been doing and, and what form it takes. Start off by telling us what, it, what your team is called, what, what your group is called. We're the Constitution for Scotland. Okay. We're actually a, a Scottish registered charity. And we kicked off, launched the, the, uh, the charity in uh, September 2020. It is internet-based, and we actually use an internationally recognized vehicle. It's called Consul. It's used uh, in our 35 countries. It has uh, United Nations uh, Public Service Awards. And it also includes a very secure voting system. On our system, you actually have two means of actually voting for the content. Yeah. We actually took an early decision that there was a waste of time trying to write out long spiels of information. So what we said was that we've got to make it suitable for today's society. We break it down into a number of different component parts. And we did that by 17, we've got 17 different articles. They are broken down into segments and there are a total of 170 different sections. Each one can be gone into, read, and you can comment on it. You can actually say, I don't like this, I don't like that. You can actually add your own opinions and at the end of the day, you can actually say, I like it or I don't like it. Okay. Yep. And what's, the, what's the address of your website, Bob? It's the www.constitutionforscotland.scot, all lowercase. There you are, folks. Yeah. Uh, that, that's the name of Bob's website. Uh, can I say that people should, if they want to get involved, they should write, they, they can contact you there on that yes. website. Info at www.constitutional.scot. There we are. That's, that's all on the website. It's on the website. We've got, some, we've got quite a number of questions coming in, Bob, so uh, I'm, I'm concerned we might run out of time. So here, here we go. Uh, the first one from Brunpot is a, more or less a comment, but I'd like your view on it. He says, is it not the case that most politicians don't like constitutions because it constrains them? I'm not a politician. I can't understand that. But I can certainly agree with the, 
one of the problems, one of the issues which we've uh, had on a number of occasions, uh, they've raised the issue, what about these professional politicians? They seem to be out of touch with reality. And it has been suggested that uh, that should be limited to two consecutive sessions. That's for people to decide, not for us. We're giving them the vehicle to make their comments, to have their discussions, and then to vote on it. Cool. Okay. Now, um, we have also another comment. Uh, Hashbury is saying, look, in my opinion, uh, is that those who oppose independence should be involved in any constitution uh, um, uh, discussions uh, which, uh, about what, what we might adopt after the referendum, but before separation is finally achieved. So he's saying that people who oppose ought to be involved in working towards developing our constitution. How yes. do you feel about that? I, I, total agreement. We are saying anybody and everybody can come onto our website and put their point of view yeah. and discuss it. A number of people are still confused. Peter is saying, and I, again, I hate to keep going back to this, but it's, it, it seems such a, a terribly, terribly obvious point. And I'm not suggesting you can necessarily answer this because you've, you've given it your best shot, Bob. Uh, but people are confused. They say, uh, why, have the, why have you had to do this? Why have the SNP or the Scottish government done this? Why has it been left to you? We, I don't know, the answer is, I don't know. But what I've found is that uh, politicians need to be led. And one of the reasons we actually put in a voting system is that we could tabulate votes in order to gather numbers to apply pressure. If there's just a half a dozen votes, the politicians will sweep it under the table. But if there's 10,000 votes on our uh, website, they'll listen. Direct votes. And that's how I would recommend we put pressure on the government, because you will have to put pressure on. Have you been in touch with with anyone? Have you been in touch with Nicola Sturgeon? I've met Nicola Sturgeon on one occasion when she was in the, the cabinet up in the, Alex Salmon took the cabinet up to Elgin. I met her there. I just had a few words with her. She was rather busy lady. Yeah. But, but have you contacted her since to say, look, this is what we're doing. We think it has merit. We've sent copies of our uh, constitution to the SNP headquarters a number of times. We have made direct contact with a number or we have attempted to make direct contact with a number of the uh, the senior members of the SNP. I've actually had, I think, uh, two senior members at, at presentations which I have given. None of them have ever come back. Okay, okay. So therefore, it, it's evident from what you're saying that uh, though it seems to be self-evident to many of us, mm-hmm. uh, it's not a priority for the government. Uh, that, that seems to chime with the, uh, the experiences of other people. Well, good wishes for your charity. Uh, we've been running the address on the screen. You can't see it and I can't see it, 
but Kevin has been good enough to do that. So hopefully, well, people will get in touch to support you and to give you their views. And hopefully that will help as you try to escalate the priority of this. And I wish you, I wish you every success, I have to well, say. Well, what we're actually finding at the moment, John, is that there is a growing impetus now. We yep. started off with there was very, very few, but over the actual months, the preceding months, we've been giving presentations. We've actually been in discussions with the people who have written other con con constitutions as well. And there is a growing feeling we need action and more and more people are actually coming, visiting, voting, making their comments. Good. Well, more, more strength to your arm. Uh, we've only really got 10 minutes. I, I would like to ask you if you could look ahead. This is a question we put to all of our guests. If you could look ahead uh, down the pike, as the Americans say, down the road, it's the three years from now, what's your vision for Scotland? Well, Scotland is an old nation, most older than most people appreciate. We've been a sovereign nation for 1,100 years. And over the last three years, you could say that Scotland's been in living in a form of cocoon. And we're emerging from that cocoon. Whilst we're in the cocoon, there were many benefits, but many drawbacks. When we went into the cocoon, I believe about a quarter of the population of the entire UK lived in Scotland. Today, of course, after being in that cocoon, we're down to about 8.5%. But we're emerging. Our uh, sense of identity is growing. People are becoming more involved. And people are asking the question, why can't we rule ourselves? Why do we need a foreign country to actually spend the money we send to them when we could do it far better on our own. We have had that demonstrated by a small but competent actual government. That's only going to grow. We're going to get our independence, hopefully sooner rather than later. It's not going to happen overnight. Once we actually vote for independence, it's going to take two or three years to actually build the nation into the form of nation that we actually want. But by the time we actually uh, are ready for Independence Day, we must have a written constitution of and ready to be put into operation immediately. Because then we can authorize the government that we elect to rule us and control our resources. We're going there and we're getting that. Okay. You, you, you haven't quite answered my question, which was, what do you see? What do you see as the state of Scotland in, say, three years' time? What will it look like? If you and I were on a time machine right now and we could take our audience with us, describe what we'd be looking at. I feel a much more satisfied, a better country, because... We would be spending our own money in our own country, developing our own country, and most important of all, we'd be building a country where our children could actually have jobs and live here in order to build their families rather than have to go abroad. Yeah. Much broader, a more grown-up country. Yeah. 
an outward looking country, a country which welcomes people just as we are welcomed and have been welcomed all over the world. It's just, Scotland isn't the mountains, it's not the glens, it's not the buns, it's the people in every village, in every town. Scotland is the people and we are a great race. And the world knows that. They recognise that. You go anywhere in the world, I do, and that's where your word joke comes in. Nice to meet you, Jock. Have a drive. And not only that, what I'm hoping is well in three years from now. A friend of mine died just a few uh, years ago, but uh, he left me a bottle of whiskey because he and I were going to sit down and crack open that bottle when we got independence. And I'm hoping to crack that bottle. And when I do, I'll be pouring two drums. <laughs> Neil? Forever you are, forever you're looking down, it's Sheridra to Scotland. Good. Well, let, let, let's hope that, that you and Neil are able to have that dram. Just a quick question, though. Let's go back to the Constitution for a second. People ask me a simple question, which is, okay, uh, the present Westminster arrangements are inadequate in the way that you described so eloquently earlier i.e. that the Prime Minister with a working majority can pretty much make up the Constitution as he or she goes along. I'm paraphrasing, but that was roughly what you said. And you, you said that was, uh, I'm using my words, not yours, a deplorable situation. But surely that's exactly the conditions that would pertain in an independent Scotland without a written Constitution. Without a written constitution, Ooh. that is the most likely way. Yeah. But once we have a written constitution, we will be a normal country then. Yes, and in normal what, countries, what that rather suggests coalitions. There would have to be a constitution agreed before independence occurred. Yes. As I said earlier, we've got to have an oven ready written constitution ready to be implemented on Independence Day. And it has to be authorized and agreed by okay. the people. Okay, okay, yeah. And this is, John, of course, where uh, your uh, expertise <laughs> comes in. You've been well, through the convention. So. Yeah. We've got I, I to mean, move towards that now. My role tonight has been very much and I hope everyone understands this. My role tonight has been very much devil's advocate. In other words, I'm here to test Bob. I'm not in any way, shape or form agreeing with many of the uh, suggestions I put to you, Bob. I'm simply uh, using that as a device so that we can travel this route in a way that hopefully uh, answers some of the concerns and reservations that lots of people have. Because we... You didn't actually say this, but the reality is that uh, when people's knowledge of constitutions has been tested in this country, uh, it, it's frankly lamentable. Um, you know, I mean, a seven-year-old in the United States, um, on average, would know more about constitutions than a seventy-year-old would in Scotland. That's a fact. It's just that, you know, in most countries. Yeah, in most countries, they teach about the constitution at school. Yeah. 
And in yeah. some countries, when they actually graduate from school, they are handed a copy of their constitution. Right. It's one of the primary functions of the actual consultation which we are having. It's educating people. And that is what we're finding as we're going around the country. They appreciate, we've never seen this likes before. We've never seen this overview before. They can actually come on our concert, even if they don't want to comment. They yeah. can read it. They can yeah. understand the framework of the constitution. And we're by no means saying that what we've written as our guidance model is the yeah. final one. No way. Are you confident, uh, this is a political question now, and I apologise in advance, but it will be in the minds of many people watching and listening tonight. How confident are you that the SNP will have a majority in the May elections in the light of the internal difficulties of column that, that they've been experiencing and are still experiencing? The bulk of the people who actually vote SNP today don't vote for the SNP. They vote for independence. SNP is seen by, I would say, the majority as a vehicle mm -hmm. to obtain independence. Okay. SNP is well known that it's an amalgamation yeah. of a number of different factions. And it is quite likely that is one of the reasons why the SNP have been somewhat sluggish, because they know that once we actually become independent, there's going to be a split, there's going to be a number of factions will be recreated as individual parties like you have in other democratic countries. And that's when we'll get coalitions. Yeah. I mean, it is interesting that uh, historically the, the Troubles in the SNP, you know, have a long history in the sense that they they would they are the sort of problems that affect secessionist movements in history. By the closer they get to their final goal, the more likely that broad church is to become more diverse, because the the principles within it see the goal within their grasp, and the reasons for that the pressures that existed in the past to submerge these differences in a broad church, apply less and less as you get closer to your final destination. And so it's not unusual for these sort of things to happen. Historically, historically, it's a question of management as much as anything else, it seems to yes. me. And it seems to me, again, I'm not a member, looking at it from the outside, the, the SNP does have huge management problems, but that means they're fixable. That doesn't mean they can't be resolved. If they were, if they were otherwise, they would be, they would be difficult, I think. But maybe that's a facile judgment. Um, we're almost out of time. Uh, uh, people are writing to say, "This has been excellent." Thanks, Bob. Uh, that's that's your that's your audience. Thanks to them for coming back. We're almost out of time. Is there any one last message in thirty seconds that you would like to give the folks who are watching and listening tonight, Bob? Well, I would like, I would just suggest that they actually come onto our website, take a good look at what we are actually proposing, become involved in the argument, and that way you'll be able to answer the question what sort of Scotland do we want to actually build? There you are, folks. You, you, you've heard it from the horse's mouth. Bob, who's been 
committing himself for many years uh, to a written constitution is giving you the chance to participate in a process that he has gone with colleagues uh, to some considerable efforts to set up. Make full use of it. You, you've seen the details on the screen. Uh, I would encourage you to, to get in touch with Bob and his colleagues. Bob, thanks for joining us tonight. A big thank you to you. And a big thank you to all of you for watching and listening tonight. Your audience, we depend on you. Uh, as always, we have formidable guests coming up. We are fully booked up right through into the middle of April. Uh, and we've got some absolutely wonderful people coming on the show. Don't miss it. 7 p.m. every Wednesday. Put it in your diary. Next week, we have Suzanne Seedyke. Now, Suzanne will be talking about children. Uh, join us next week and put your questions to Suzanne. She is a, 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 a renowned expert. And you, you know, I mean, this is a fact. You know, children are our future. A lot of people in the independence movement, for example, will tell you, I'm not doing this for me. I'm not doing it for my neighbors. I'm doing it for our children. So our children, there's where, there's where the focus perhaps needs to be. And Suzanne, no one is better placed perhaps than Suzanne to talk about that. Uh, or by the way, please look out for Elliot Bulmer's uh, constitution column in the Sunday National this weekend. Head for the seven day section. It's on just inside the back page. I mean, I strongly recommend it. When someone like Elliot Bullman is writing about constitutions, you're getting the creme de la creme. There is no one more accomplished and better to talk about the whole issue of constitutions, save Bob and his, his team. And very importantly, please support Indie Life. You see the details on the screen. Go to the Watson Guide. There's a whole raft of different programs there. There's a richness and a wealth of talent available to you. Just go onto the Watson Guide and tap into all of that. And remember, as we say, good night. It's been a great day for British democracy. Good night, all. Thank you for watching and listening.